Hi, this is Libby. And this is Roberta. And this is Art Blog Radio. We're talking today with Sid Carpenter. She is a ceramic artist in Philadelphia whose work we've long admired. Her muscular forms pull together recognizable imagery like chains, fences, flowers, into loose narratives that suggest black history. Sid, who was a Pew Fellow with many other awards that was in 1992, is in the studio art department of Swarthmore College, where she teaches. Uh, So you have an MFA and a BFA from Tyler School of Art. Uh, Where are you from? I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but I've spent most of my adult life in Philadelphia, and it has actually been a very, very rich place of resources. Um, I've traveled all over the world, but coming back to Philadelphia always provides places for me to make work, places for me to show my work, place where my family has resided. So it's, it's provided all of those essentials that make it possible for me to work confidently and feeling as if I am supported by community, by inspiration. Everything is here. Do you ever get back to Pittsburgh? I do go back to Pittsburgh occasionally. I've had opportunities to show, to demonstrate, to lecture, to go to conferences. My family still owns property in uh, Pittsburgh, which is actually kind of interesting because it's where I first observed my mother garden. It was the first place that I began to learn about or at least discover that passion that would begin to develop and turn into mature work many, many decades later. Are you a gardener? I am very, very much a gardener. Um, My interest in gardening has not been so much about the flowery part of it. I think it has to do more with the the real-life issues that take place in a garden. Things that you just wouldn't even think about because our associations with gardens are the places of refuge, places of beauty, places of order. And I find that um, that's all the surface, but the uh, beginnings of that are located in rupture, discordant things, in um, violence a little bit. Um, it just, there are all of these kinds of things that you wouldn't expect to take place in order for a garden to happen. So um, I've been taken by those kinds of contradictions. What is it about violence? Um, what's happening in a garden if you plant something and you come back and you find that some insect has violently destroyed it or systematically destroyed it. Things there's there's combat in the garden, Constantly. even even digging into the yeah, earth. Yeah, is... just that kind of penetration. To, in order to get something done, you have to be willing to sometimes destroy. There's, there's this physicality that can be definitely connected to kind of violent acts. So, do you do that in your work? It's it's kind of interesting because the, the shapes that I use they're very very active. Um, I try to uh, make the work appear to have that kind of acrobatic, physical feeling to it. They're not necessarily looking 
as if they're dangerous, but they're, when you start looking at how they were made and how something got there, you start to question how'd she do that, how that happened, there's risk taking, there's all of those kinds of things that put me as an artist on the edge when they're made. And that's the whole thing about art making. You see this thing that sits there sublimely, quietly, in this restive state, and then when you start to investigate it visually and start to question, well, how'd that get there? And I think that that's a kind of subtext to making. And I really want to emphasize that whole issue around making and what it takes and how different artists engage their materials. So let's talk about you being a maker a little bit. You brought that up earlier. And when did you start making things? You said to us earlier that you began as a painter. Mm -hmm. And that's making, but in a different kind of vocabulary than working with clay. So when I say I began as a painter, that would be my formal education, going to art school. Prior to that, I was always making. There was sewing projects. There was painting. um, There was uh, building things in the yard, using my hands, having ideas about what things should look like and what I wanted them to look like based on what I could gather. That was just um, a normal part of my, just my makeup. So coming to art school, it became very formalized. Um, I had this notion in my head, well, hmm, what do artists do? Oh, artists paint. And But fortunately, I went to Tyler School of Art, and the people that were there, or at least the program, allowed you to wander. And I think that that is so, so important. So one of the places I wandered into was the Clay Studio, and at the time, Rudy Staffel was teaching, and um, there were others. And it was one of those revelatory experiences. I wanted to master a process I wasn't focusing materials and making connections between materials and process and actual experience and ideas. So what are your ideas? Now, after many, many decades, I mean, ideas have evolved. They've come back and forth between focusing on a process that allowed me to be expressive and responding to places, the garden, experiences, family. Um, So now ideas have focused in on African-American farms and gardens. I realize it is completely essential to who I am as a person. My grandmother was a famous gardener in Pittsburgh, and I recently discovered that. I didn't know that, that she had during the 40s a victory garden that was celebrated in Pittsburgh and she was able to feed seven children and share it with her neighbors and it was well-known. People came to it because it was beautiful as well as bountiful. That was amazing. I learned that from my aunt who has since come to live with um, us in Philadelphia. And so that was an important issue. And my mother was a gardener and realizing that a lot of my imagery and my The things that give me joy, what I want to look at, um, what I want to respond to in my work is coming out of that process of digging in the earth, creating a space that uh, is visually stimulating to me, that's constantly changing. It's um, where I find that a lot of people who I 
love and value. Now, I am at this place now with the African-American farms and gardens where I know what the point is and I know how to make these images which are portraits of these individuals and their land. But it has to go a little deeper than that because it's going to be kind of easy to say that that's what they are. So I'm still at that place where I am looking to see what these are because they can be very, very easily seen as that's such a good idea. They just, you know, what an idea. You're making a farm and it's about a person and that's very cool. But that to me is not where these reside really for me. I want to say that one of the things that strikes me about these, and that's on revisiting them on the internet after having seen them in the real world, Mm -hmm. um, was that they were like heraldry Mm -hmm. and they were creating some sort of um, family identity. You're looking at me like it's crazy. (laughs) No, no, I'm listening to you very carefully because those kind of insights inform me if that's someone's perception of it. Yeah, so I thought that that's what that there was some sort of family history making, elevating families that didn't necessarily have uh, the sort of nobility sort of stature that we associate with heraldry and giving it to a new group of people and saying this is worthy. Well, it's kind of interesting because what our culture chooses to elevate is it's fairly random, and it has to do with who's in charge. But that doesn't eliminate the possibility, or at least the reality, that those who are not being heralded are not themselves honoring themselves. It is not a situation where the media and newspapers and history is recording them, but within that group themselves, they are acknowledging their own sustainability and resilience. And that's what I have found. I recently drove through Georgia and South Carolina visiting farms and gardens owned by African Americans. Um, And one of the revelations of it was the extent to which they celebrated their own accomplishments and their own ability to be on this land and just the level to which they had achieved so much. And it didn't matter if who was in charge knew about it. They were doing it, and doing it really, really well. Uh, One family was raising cattle. Another family was growing wine grapes. Um, One of the things that um, I had discovered was that there's recently been a lot of attention paid in the media to who the new American farmer is. And the picture of the new American farmer is a young white woman. But what I found is we need to revisit that because there are many, many African-Americans who are returning to their family farms and playing a major role in making sure that agriculture does not become a big agri-corporate business. I mean, it does. It is. that There's no denying that. It is. But at the same time, the family farm, as much as there is bad news about people losing their land, there are many, many people returning to the land and flourishing on their family farms and buying more land. And it's very exciting. So when I hear that the new American 
the face of the new American farmer is a young white woman, I think, well, they didn't take the trip I took. They didn't see who I saw. And I wanted to react to that in my own art. Um, and that's why uh, a kind of simplistic interpretation of making portraits of farmers and um, that's all very nice, but it's a lot more complicated. It's more nuanced. It's more interesting than that. So when do you start working on the new work? And tell us about where it's going to be cited, because it's going to be not in a gallery. Well, I'm going to be working on it now. I actually made the purchase of the clay. The clay is in the studio. The, the fact that they're going to be cited in the landscape challenges me to technically figure out how that actually works. So Which that, landscape is that? Um, I have been invited to show them at Swarthmore College, which is where I teach. So that would be the first stop for them. And I see it, of course, as a first draft. So I just see it as a long-term project. Let's talk about travel a little bit. Mm -hmm. you, you, I believe, have been to China. Yes. And I know that you did a project in Ghana mm -hmm. with another artist. Yeah. Can you tell us about Ghana? Ghana was an exciting experience. I traveled there with um, a professor from Xavier College in New Orleans. Her name is Mapo Kenord Payton. She began to go to Ghana in response to a photograph that she saw of an African woman who was making a pot. And Mapo decided that the woman was looking at her and communicating to her, and the question that the woman was asking is, why aren't you here? Mapo took that literally and went to Ghana to look for that woman. But you went with her? Later. Oh. Later. Mapo didn't find the woman, but she found the village that the woman was working in, and she subsequently established a relationship with those villagers and began inviting other artists and students to come to the village, and the project was to build a high-fire kiln there. And so over a number of, of visits, she brought bricks, she got a, an expert kiln designer and builder from the University of Kumasi to come up. I came with a couple of students, and we worked on this kiln. And it was, um, once again, it's that whole thing of finding... Uh, other no ways of knowing. Um, our goal was not to come there and show them how to be better, because that would be the assumption. Why are you going there to show them how to build a kiln? They know how to make kilns. They've been making pots forever. So just being there and seeing how other people get things done. So what was the most startling of those things? Startling? Or... What you responded to that was special? Um, understanding that there are materials that are there, and you work with those materials. For instance, the, the houses that they built. The, um, we would call them adobe houses. So it's a, a, a vernacular architecture. Over the years, with the colonial history, different kinds of architecture have been brought to this geographical area that basically reflect Western aesthetics and Western needs. So cinder block and 
uh, just all kinds of inappropriate building materials that don't really address the climate or what's available. Architects there, and they haven't ever even been acknowledged as architects, which is a stunning oversight to me. Um, but the architects there understand what are the best materials to build the structures that take into account the heat, cooling. So they make these beautiful mud domed buildings and they are spectacularly designed and painted. And when you go into them, they're cool and they're comfortable. They're not large, they can be repaired. So they they adjust to what's there. It's sustainable architecture. Of course, the problem has been because these things are determined to be quote-unquote primitive, they become devalued by the people who create them. So there has to be a reverse of that. Their idea of modernity and, and, and progress, of course, is to have a cinder block building that has air conditioning, and which means they're going to have to have a source of electricity and all these things which they should have. I would not deny them. I have no romantic visions of keeping them in their mud huts, but I get why those mud huts have sustained them for thousands of years and that they are quite beautiful. And I hope that they don't leave them behind in their pursuit of modernity. Thank you so much for talking with us. We've been speaking with Sid Carpenter. Thank you, Sid. Thank you. Thank you. Art Blog Radio is brought to you by theartblog.org. Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor. And thanks to Eric Biondo for his music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.